He was an American flautist living in London, studying at the Royal Academy of Music. At only 20 years of age, he was intelligent, gifted, talented, a prodigy. On the evening of June 24, 2009, he performed at the Academy in London Soundscapes, featuring the music of composers such as Joseph Hayden, George Frederick Handel, and Felix Mendelssohn. But his flute wasn't the only thing he brought with him the evening of his performance. He had with him a relatively large piece of luggage, a rolling suitcase that contained in it the accoutrements of a thief, gloves, a small flashlight, a pair of wire cutters, a glass cutting saw with a diamond blade. After the concert, he retrieved the suitcase from his locker and put his plan into motion, making his way towards the Natural History Museum in the town of Tring. This wasn't the first time he'd been there, but it would certainly be his last. After months of reconnaissance, investigating, casing, scouting, scrutinizing, studying, evaluating, analyzing, and planning, he was confident that he would be able to make his way around the walls, the barbed wire, the cameras, and the guards in order to get what he was there to pilfer. A collection of coveted relics of the past, many of which no longer exist anywhere in the world. Unique, rare, endangered, extinct, priceless, and irreplaceable. All for a hobby that grew into an obsession and a golden flute. In this latest series, I'll be taking you across the pond to England for one of the most baffling crimes ever carried out. This is California Dreaming, and you are listening to the tale of the Great Feather Heist. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is an independent one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can support the podcast. You can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on preferably five stars if you truly enjoy listening. It pushes us up the charts and helps new listeners discover us. You can recommend the show in true crime podcast fan groups. You can like our Facebook page, leave a rating for the show there too. Join our discussion group and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you would like to go above and beyond, you can support us on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you will not only be helping us keep the lights on, you will also gain access to dozens of exclusive full-length episodes and multi-part series cases as well. For the month of October, we began a new series where we delve into a 2005 fire that happened at a warehouse in Vallejo, California, where $277 million worth of wine was destroyed. It's a very intriguing story, and you don't want to miss out. And if a subscription isn't your thing, you can make a one-time contribution through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I'd like to thank Melissa F., Melissa M., and Rebecca M. for joining Patreon or raising your membership to the next level. Most of this episode is based on the research and investigation into this crime conducted by Kirk Johnson, 
founder of the nonprofit called The List Project, which I mentioned and gave you information about in part one. Johnson wrote a book about this case that we're covering in these episodes entitled The Feather Thief, and it will be referenced in the episode when necessary and in the show notes. Okay, so in part four, we left off with Edwin having taken stock of the birds that he took from the museum. He had begun the process of harvesting the feathers, but soon it was going to be time for the academic year to end and he was going to have to stow these birds away for the summer while he flew home to New York until the new year began again in September. Before he started plucking all the feathers out of these birds, He did contemplate returning them to the museum, but decided it was too risky. And he had gone through so much in the first place to get these birds. So I don't think he thought about returning them all that seriously anyway. So he started harvesting and sorting and packaging the bird feathers. But like I said, it was put on hold for the summer. Shortly after Edwin got home, his brother saw on the fly tying forum that police in England put out a press conference or a press release about the stolen birds. So Edwin now knew that there was indeed an investigation going on. Up until then, all was quiet. As it were, nobody figured out anything was missing from the museum until 34 days after the break-in. So Edwin had a pretty good start. And because Edwin believed that law enforcement dropped the ball in the case, And to him, it didn't really appear that they were taking the crime all that seriously. His fears about getting caught slowly subsided. Within a month of his return to London after the summer, Edwin began posting about the bird skins and feathers for sale, as well as reaching out to some prominent wealthy fly tires that he knew in passing. And before long, the cash started rolling in. And this carried on for about nine months until an observant law enforcement officer from Northern Ireland who happened to attend a Dutch fly festival in the Netherlands and noticed that a blue chatterer that one of the vendors had at the fair was in unusually pristine condition with its eye holes stuffed with curiously ancient looking cotton. The officer suddenly recalled hearing about the break-in at the Tring Museum He found out where this vendor got the bird from, and when he returned to Northern Ireland, he contacted the investigative agency working on the case and provided them with a tip. Much to their dismay, their new suspect, Edwin, was on summer vacation from the Royal Academy of Music, so they had to wait for Edwin to return to London. When they got word that he was back, they showed up at his flat, and our story picks up from there. When Edwin asked the three law enforcement officers standing at his door if there was a problem, Detective Adele Hopkin informed him that they were investigating a break-in at the Natural History Museum in Tring and that they were there armed with a search warrant. And that was it for Edwin. He knew that they'd find the birds right away. So trying to lie to them wasn't going to do him any favors, so he fessed up right away. He showed them the cardboard box tucked away in his closet where whatever birds he had left were stored at. But then Edwin began offering up a number of excuses for his behavior, 
that he was struggling through some mental health issues, that he had sunken into depression. And as soon as he took the birds, he became overwhelmed with regret and wanted to take them back, but he was too afraid to. He also began apologizing profusely. And then, oddly enough, he pointed to his TV and said he had stolen that too. From the Music Academy's rec room, of all places. The officers began taking photographs of the stolen items and began the process of collecting evidence. There were still many intact bird skins, but there were also partial pieces of birds. Those were the parts that were worthless in fly tying. He had baggies filled with feathers. The officers packaged up items for evidence that hadn't even come from the tring, but they weren't going to sit there and try to sort through this and that. If it had feathers, they bagged it up. And this included the bird, that pheasant, that customer Jens Pilgard had sent him in that transaction from the fly tying festival. They also confiscated his phone, computer, camera, and passport. It had suddenly all become so surreal for Edwin. He had gotten so comfortable feeling as though he had gotten away with this that it never even crossed his mind that the time would come when the police would be knocking on his door and hauling him off to jail. So Detective Hopkins placed Edwin in the back seat of her police vehicle and took him to Watford, a town about 15 miles or 25 kilometers north of London. The police station there had a number of holding cells available, but apparently over there, they're referred to as custody suites. Fancy, right? He was booked. They took his mug shot, his fingerprints, and a DNA swab that they were going to have sent over to the lab to compare it to the blood collected on that piece of broken glass that they recovered at the museum. Afterwards, Edwin was left to sit by himself in his suite. Of course, as someone who had never been in trouble with the law before, Edwin was growing anxious. He didn't know what was going to happen next. He wasn't sure how long he would be staying in this suite. And nobody knew what was happening to him. And he's in a foreign country, which certainly doesn't help his situation in terms of getting in touch with people and reaching out for help. Edwin really didn't think that he was going to get caught, so he didn't have a contingency plan for that possible scenario. It had been well over a year since the break-in. He had assumed the case had been bungled by the police and the museum curators in the first place, so he was pretty shell-shocked probably mainly because of all the ways that he had been the type to be a planner. He was a list maker and he was usually pretty thorough. And this was something that he hadn't anticipated getting caught. So he began thinking about his family and his future, going to jail and possibly never being able to play for a symphony, never making it as a musician after years of devoted practice and perfecting his playing on the flute. So yeah, he had a lot of time to sit there in his suite and think about what he had done and what the future is going to look like. The next thing that Detective Hopkins did was contact the Tring Museum to let them know that they caught the burglar, they've collected all the bird skins that were left, and asked them to come down to the Watford station to pick them up. 
In his book, Kirk Johnson described the moment that the detective was able to tell the museum that they had the person responsible for the break-in under arrest, that this was a highlight of her career in law enforcement. I was kind of surprised at that notion because I didn't really get the impression throughout the investigation up until then that the case was all that much important to her. But as she worked the case and she began to develop an understanding and appreciation for what those birds represented in terms of science and history, the case began to grow on her. And she did say that over the year that she'd been working on the case, she formed close relationships with the museum staff who shared with her where those birds had come from, what that era in history from which they came was like, and who Alfred Wallace was and how much he contributed to natural history, and that he was an important part of British history, just as much as Charles Darwin was and is. So it was a very gratifying moment to be able to say that the case was solved. The next thing she needed to do was sit down with this American flautist, Edwin Rist, and see if he would be willing to answer some of her questions. After that, he'd be in the hands of the prosecutor. But because Edwin had confessed, there wasn't going to be a trial. It would be up to the Crown prosecutor to work out a sentence. When the museum's ornithology curator, Mark Adams, got to the police station, he sat down in one of their visitor suites. I'm just kidding. It's probably more like an interrogation room or a conference room or something like that. He got his first look at the items that had been recovered at Edwin's flat. Remember, 299 birds had been stolen. There were only 174 complete intact skins left. 125 of them were either completely gone or had been partially harvested for their feathers. And compounding the devastating loss, Edwin had removed the biodata tags from 72 of those intact birds that they got back. That meant only one-third of the birds lost were still useful scientifically. But for some of the species of the stolen birds, none of them had any of their tags, Edwin had stolen 17 flame bowerbirds, for example. Mark counted that nine were recovered intact, but none of them were tagged anymore. He had stolen 47 Indian crows. Only nine of those were recovered. And of those, four of them had tags. He had stolen 37 kingbirds of paradise. Only three of those were recovered intact. And no tags were attached to any of them. Edwin hadn't even kept most of the data tags. He disposed nearly all of them except for two, both of which were handwritten by Alfred Wallace. Other than those handful of birds that were collected from Edwin's apartment that still had their tags, everything else was basically useless to science and useless to the museum. Edwin had dismantled the other 125 birds, leaving them with a pile of bird parts, partial skins, chopped up pieces, and baggies of feathers. Edwin had been left sitting in his private suite for quite a long time. Several hours had passed before Detective Hopkin went to go get him and bring him into the conversation suite. I assume Detective Hopkin advised Edwin of his rights. It's not exactly the same wording, but 
The principles are similar. It's called the right to silence. He's told that he doesn't have to say anything, but it may harm his defense if he doesn't mention when questioned something which you later rely on in court. I kind of felt like the fine line between the difference of the rights given in the UK versus the rights given here is that here in the United States, your silence can't be used against you. And it kind of sounds like in the right to silence in Great Britain, it can be used against you in some ways. I'm not completely clear on it. So he's told anything that he does say may be given in evidence. Anyone questioned at the police station has the right to free legal aid. So she did ask Edwin if he wanted the legal aid, but he had already thought about it and he decided that it might just serve him best if he waived his rights and cooperated. He already confessed, but he did kind of a messed up thing, which I don't think is necessary. They might have wanted to know this information, but he didn't have to be a stool pigeon about it. But he put everybody he sold bird skins and feathers to on blast. He named names. He named everybody and how much they all paid him. Maybe Edwin thought his case might go his way if he ratted everyone out. And he really didn't care. And he said so because it was their bad for trusting him in the first place. What a little dickhead. Anyway, Detective Hopkin was more interested in whether or not Edwin had any accomplices that helped him pull off the burglary in any way. If anyone helped him with the planning or if anyone had actually put him up to it. She seemed to not really believe him when he told her that he was the only one involved. The officers that assisted her with the arrest had gone through the history on his computer. They read through emails and online conversations. And while it didn't appear that anybody else was in on the heist with Edwin, Detective Hopkin wanted to make sure that if there was, that everyone was held accountable. But Edwin insisted that he acted alone. After about an hour of questioning, Detective Hopkin gave Edwin instructions on what he was to do next. There were certain things that he needed to abide by since he had been arrested. He needed to stay out of trouble, don't skip town, things like that. And he was given a court date and everything that she had just told him was all down on a piece of paper with instructions to appear. And with that, he was free to walk out the door. And he was like, that's it? They had me sitting in a jail cell. I mean, come on, they called it a suite, right? Sitting in a suite all day. And the only thing that he needed to be sent on his way was this piece of paper. That's it. No ankle bracelet. No bail money. Nothing. He was like, okay, whatever. He didn't know where he was when he left the police station. So he just started walking in a direction. One of his first thoughts was to run away and go back home to the United States. I guess maybe at the moment he forgot that they had confiscated his passport. So he wasn't going to be leaving the UK. He could go to Wales or Ireland if he got bored or something, but he sure as hell wasn't going to be going to New York. Eventually, Edwin found his way home. And I don't think that I need to tell you what Edwin was tasked with doing next. Having to tell mom and dad what he had done. 
even though it was a difficult thing for him to have to face up to, the blow was softened by the fact that after getting over whatever initial shock his parents may have had, they threw their complete 100% support behind him. His brother Anton was pretty emotional about it when he found out that Edwin was the one who had stolen all of those birds from the museum. Anton had just been accepted into Juilliard. Things were headed in the right direction for both brothers. But when he heard what had happened, Edward could hear his brother sobbing as he talked to his mom on the phone. And that was the worst. The pain that this was causing his family, who he already knew had plenty to struggle through without him bringing more things for them to have to stress over. But like I said, they quickly rallied to not only provide Edwin with their unconditional love and support, they also began working out anything that they could to try to make things right, to try to make the museum whole again as much as possible. They wanted to hire Edwin a good attorney. They would find the money somehow to do that, they promised him. Edwin's father told him that he wanted as much information from him as possible with regards to all of the people that Edwin had conducted business with, everyone that he sold bird skins to so he could work on purchasing them back so they could be returned to the museum. But you know those didn't have the tags on them anymore, that's for sure. Otherwise, Edwin's buyers would have been aware of the origin of the skins. But Edwin's dad wanted to do whatever he could to help the case against his son. His mom booked a flight to London so she could go with him on his first court date. And I'm pretty sure that going to court was not on mom's to-do list for the next time she planned on visiting Europe. Now, despite Edwin having been taken into custody for the museum break-in, the whole ordeal, at least for the time being, had no impact on anything else that was going on in his life when it came to his studies and his flute playing at the Royal Academy. Obviously, he missed the rehearsal the morning that he was arrested. But when the next rehearsals came up, he showed up and carried on like nothing had happened because nobody knew. And he showed up and he managed through it all despite being preoccupied with the trouble that he was in. As he played, he had all these thoughts going through his mind. He wondered if the years of playing the flute would all be for naught. He wondered if and when he was convicted of this crime, if that meant that he was going to be deported. If he was, then that would mean he wasn't going to graduate from the Royal Academy. His almost four years there also was all for nothing. He was in the home stretch. He was only six months away from finishing. He would have earned his degree and he would have went on to play in one of the most renowned orchestras in the world because he would basically have his pick to choose from. He was so painfully close to realizing this dream of his and now it was slipping away because of what he had done. Then there was the crime itself that he had committed, or should we say crimes. There were so many laws that he had broken that go beyond simply breaking into the museum and stealing 299 birds. If we didn't know any better on the surface, it might seem like somewhat of a petty crime. And I think I said it early on when we started this series, of the crimes and the criminals that we have covered in these 200 cases of California Dreaming, 
Many of them have been quite brutal. We've covered and discussed many disturbing and violent cases, and Edwin Rist does not fall into that category. But when you break it down, his crime isn't all that petty. The bird skins that he stole were easily worth at least a million dollars in the illegal bird trade. And in selling and shipping them all over the world, he's certainly violated a number of international laws, laws that were enacted to prohibit the import and export of exotic animals, the trafficking of endangered species, which is universally banned. Multiple counts of each crime he has committed over the course of nearly a year. When you add it all up, the punishment would surely be stiff. The only way Edwin thought that he might see his way out the other end of this with a possibility of it not ruining the rest of his life is if he had a really, really good lawyer. Edwin's court appearance was scheduled for two weeks after his initial arrest on November 26, 2010. And that was a Friday. And in that particular year, it was the day after Thanksgiving. So if this had been in America, Edwin definitely would not have been scheduled for court on that date. And I'm sure his family was really thrilled to be spending Thanksgiving not having turkey dinner. He was at Hempstead Magistrate's Courthouse. So in the Feather Thief book, the author said that Edwin walked into a large glass box for defendants in the middle of the courtroom. I had no idea what that looked like. But if you Google it, there is a small room off to the side with large glass windows and a door. It kind of looks like a penalty box in hockey, maybe a little bit larger. It's different. And his mom and a couple of his friends were in the gallery. They sat quietly and listened to the proceedings as Edwin entered his guilty plea, guilty of burglary and money laundering. Now, apparently, this particular level of the justice system in England, well, in the UK as a whole, I believe, when cases are dealt with in the magistrate's courtroom, defendants are usually there for petty, minor issues like traffic citations or being drunk in public, things of that nature. So the prosecutors weren't really feeling like this was the appropriate court to be dealing with Edwin because they felt his crimes rose to a much more serious level than what is typically heard by the magistrate judge. They had a mountain of evidence against him. Edwin had confessed. He was entering a guilty plea. And the crime they felt was severe and needed to be dealt with by a judge who had the ability to hand down a harsher sentence than the magistrate judge would have been able to. When Edwin's lawyer spoke on his behalf, Kirk Johnson's book described how he characterized his client, so I'm going to share that excerpt with you directly. It says, Edwin's lawyer, Andy Harmon, characterized his client's actions as a youthful flight of fancy, a mistake made in the spur of the moment, and Edwin himself as an earnest naif, and I didn't know what a naif was, but synonyms include Amateur, beginner, novice, simpleton. He was propelled by an obsession with fly tying and a fascination with James Bond. He had 
began to have extremely childish fantasies about breaking into the museum. He said his client had taken only a couple of weeks to plan the theft and that his getaway vehicle was the train and he hadn't used exotic tools to break in. He didn't even take a torch, which is a flashlight in American English, and described Edwin going around the museum trying to get light off of his phone, but this isn't exactly accurate. Edwin had a tiny flashlight that didn't work well. Anyway, Edwin's attorney insisted that this was a very amateur burglary. And the judge was like, uh, yeah, no. He was going to go ahead and grant the prosecutor's motion to have the case elevated to the Crown Court, which sounds pretty serious to me. Here in the United States, that would be similar to the Superior Court. And this was very much to Edwin and his attorney's dismay. They were hoping that this would be quietly handled here with the magistrate, but no. The judge felt that the crime was serious enough to be taken up to the next level in the justice system. And along with that, the media was all over the story by then. They had kind of done a cursory once-over in the news back when law enforcement made that press release about this whole thing. But now all the media outlets, the BBC and things like that, they were coming with these sensational headlines with attention-grabbing phrases like bird skins worth millions, American flute player admits to theft. And the Daily Mail had a headline, student with a James Bond fantasy, prodigy led astray, the passion for plumage. By the way, dreamers, and an interesting aside that I did not know, British novelist Ian Fleming, who wrote the James Bond 007 novel series, actually took the name for his titular character from an American ornithologist, James Bond. The real-life James Bond was more specifically an expert on birds of the Caribbean and wrote the definitive book on the topic entitled Birds of the West Indies, first published in 1936. He was also the curator of the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia, and Fleming did, in fact, appropriate his name for his British spy, 007. In 1962, Ian Fleming told The New Yorker, quote, When I wrote the first one in 1953, I wanted Bond to be an extremely dull, uninteresting man to whom things happened. I wanted him to be a blunt instrument. When I was casting around for a name for my protagonist, I thought, by God, James Bond is the dullest name I've ever heard. Ian Fleming himself was an avid bird watcher, and he owned a copy of Bond's book on the birds of the West Indies. And later on, when speaking to the real James Bond, he said, it struck me that this brief, unromantic, Anglo-Saxon, and yet very masculine name was just what I needed. And so... With that, a second James Bond was born. The James Bond that inspired Fleming's spy hero in his first book, Casino Royale, he was born January 4, 1900 in Philadelphia. He had gone on an expedition with his father when he was 11 to the Orinoco Delta, a mostly uninhabited tropical area in eastern Venezuela, 
surrounded by rivers and swamps and rainforest, home to exotic birds, ocelots, spider monkeys, snakes, capybaras, alligators, piranhas, turtles, anacondas, among many, many other things. Traveling there is what inspired James Bond's love of nature and natural history. When his mom passed away in 1914, he and his father moved to England. He earned his bachelor's degree at Trinity College in Cambridge. He then moved back to the United States. He worked in banking for a couple of years, but he really wanted to explore nature and the world. So he quit his banking gig and set off for the Amazon with the intentions of collecting wildlife specimens to be sent back to the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences, which is where he went to work later on as the ornithology curator. When Ian Fleming used James Bond's name in his main character of his book, he did not reach out to the real James Bond to ask him or to tell him. It wasn't until seven or eight years or so after he published Casino Royale that the books became popular in the United States. And that's when James Bond was like, hey, what the hell? But he wasn't mad, though. In 1964, James and his wife paid a visit to Ian Fleming, who traveled every winter to Jamaica, and he stayed at the Golden Eye Resort. It was then Fleming gifted James Bond a first edition copy of You Only Live Twice, signed over to the real James Bond from the thief of his identity. Fleming told James that the only other thing that he could offer him was the unlimited use of his own name, and maybe someday he will discover some particularly horrific species of bird of which he would like to christen Ian Fleming in an insulting fashion. References to James Bond's ties to ornithology can be found throughout at least two of Pierce Brosnan's Bond films, where he introduces himself in the movie as an ornithologist. So yeah, all this time, the real James Bond, as it turns out, is an American bird expert. I did not know that. Getting back on topic... The news of all of this was not only spreading around on those British tabloids, it was also about to reach the fly-tying forums too. And I shared members' posts and comments at the end of part four, but I stopped short of getting into their reactions to Edwin's arrest because I didn't want any spoilers. So I'll go ahead and share some of those. There's not very many. I'll do that again. Same thing after the outro. But the headlines were soon showing up on the fly-tying websites that the feather thief had been busted. And to the surprise of many on the forum, it turned out to be one of them. One of the best. One of the best, youngest fly tires that they had all known relatively well, both he and his brother. And if you listen to some of the comments from the members that I shared in the last part, you'll see that they're quite protective and sometimes hostile. And this, they were really angry about when they heard the news. And just like that, Edwin had become a pariah in the community to a point that they wanted to see all of his equipment, all of his feathers, and all of the salmon flies that he had ever made thrown into an incinerator. There were some who were like, hold up, he's innocent until proven guilty. They didn't know yet that Edwin was confessing and would be found guilty very shortly. 
some of the members on the Classic Fly Tying Forum website shared a link to a news article about Edwin's arrest, the post had been viewed more than 4,500 times before the site's administrator deleted it because it was prompting so much outrage towards Edwin. And these were the same people who had been so excited to see the items Edwin had been posting over the previous year on their trading floor. They were excited about all the rare feathers that he was offering for sale. It all turned to anger once they learned that Edwin had stolen the birds from a museum and managed to desecrate an important part of natural history while he was at it. The website's admin finally posted this announcement a couple of days after Edwin appeared in court. For reasons I won't disclose, all posts concerning this topic of stolen birds have been deleted. I would appreciate a compliance by all members at this time to restrain from making any other posts on this subject. Thanks, the admin team. Word of Edwin's arrest and court appearance was getting to those who had gotten to know him in person too, not just on the forum. Remember the man who Edwin stayed with at his flat when he traveled at Bristol to attend the fly tying event up there? Terry, he posted in one of the forums expressing his sadness and disappointment that someone as talented as Edwin when it came to fly tying, as well as being a musician, it was so sad that Edwin had wrecked his life like this. John McLean, the guy in Michigan who was the first person Edwin began purchasing feathers from, if you recall, he had done all that yard work and odd jobs for his neighbors so that he could afford some authentic feathers, that guy, He wasn't so much as sad more than being concerned about his own reputation as a feather dealer. Kirk Johnson shared a post that McLean had made on his website where he wrote, You may not know who the Wrist Brothers were, but you will very soon. There is no way to condone Edwin's apparent actions and no real way for me to really understand them. The salmon fly tires in general do not deserve a black eye over this now. They as a group had nothing to do with it. There may be an individual or two that knowingly helped after the fact, and I sincerely hope that they will be handled by the proper authorities. 99.99% of the fly tires that covet these feathers are as shocked by this as I am. And just like the admins on the classic fly tying forum, John McLean really wanted to make sure that he got ahead of this in case people started making the connection between him and Edwin. He hadn't done anything wrong or illegal, so he took steps to distance himself from it, like many people did, in order to not have their integrity and reputations damaged by Edwin's actions. Admins also deleted Edwin's posts on their website just to ensure that Google searches for him did not lead to them. Edwin was still a member of the fly tying group online, and when he logged in, he read all of the mean comments that people were leaving about him. There were people who had been interacting with him for almost 10 years, people that he considered friends, people who he looked up to and who had helped him when he was getting started, people that he had sold feathers and skins to were now telling him to go to hell. 
Edwin's next hearing for sentencing was scheduled for January 14th, 2011. Remember, they had to change courts. So this one was the St. Albans Crown Court, located approximately 25 miles or 40 kilometers north of London. Edwin's defense attorney had submitted some documents to the court involving a mental health evaluation. The judge asked if they were seeking to examine Edwin's mental health and if this was to be potentially taken into consideration as a part of his defense. Edwin's attorney stated that they wanted the court to consider no jail time when deciding on Edwin's sentencing. But the judge was like, I didn't ask what kind of sentence you wanted for your client. I asked if you wanted this matter to be settled based on your client's mental health. Edwin's attorney said that he did. But in order for the judge to consider mental health as a mitigating factor in Edwin's case, he was going to have to have him examined by a mental health professional. Edwin's attorney said that he had someone that he intended to have evaluate him. So the judge said, okay, and he gave him a little bit less than a month to get that taken care of and ordered Edwin back in court on February 11th, 2011. But the Crown judge made it clear just because I'm going to let you get your head checked out by this doctor doesn't mean that it's going to have anything to do with my final decision. Capiche? And Edwin's attorney was like, yes, your honor. And they do call the crown court judges in the UK, your honor, except they spell honor with an additional letter U in the middle of it. Unless they're sitting as high crown court judge or a red judge is what it's called and they are specifically designated a senior judge. And in those cases, you have to address them as my lord or my lady. And by the way, when I said capiche, that isn't what the judge said. I was kind of paraphrasing. So anyhow, the defendant gets to pick his own expert to evaluate him. The court, the prosecutor, they don't insist on having their own expert examine Edwin like they would do here in the United States because, you know, you can pay anyone to say anything you want them to say to work in your favor. O.J. Simpson taught us that. Am I right? I was just kind of surprised. The judge was like, OK, go hire your own expert and we'll take his word for it. That would like so never happen here in the United States. Most of the time, criminal defendants aren't as privileged as O.J. Simpson was in his case and can't afford the expert. And if there is an evaluation to be made, it's the prosecution that usually hires the expert. And that's not always going to work out very well for the defendant. Edwin went for his appointment with a psychologist that his attorney hired to be evaluated in order to determine whether or not he had any sort of mental health concerns that could be documented and submitted to the judge for consideration come time for sentencing. He was given a questionnaire where he was asked to rank a list of statements from one to four, one being definitely agree, two being mildly agree, three being mildly disagree, and four being definitely disagree. Some of the statements that he had to rank included things like, I prefer doing things in the same manner over and over, I live for today, not for the future. It's easy for me to make up stories. I dislike risk-taking. When I'm on the phone, I can't tell 
when it's my turn to talk. Edwin wasn't really sure how to answer some of the questions. One, for example, said, I would never break any laws no matter what. The right answer would be to definitely agree. But everyone would know that that would be a lie because the reason he was there being evaluated in the first place was because he was getting ready to be sentenced for that very thing, breaking laws. If he disagreed, then that's going to lead everybody to believe that he's perfectly okay with breaking laws. And to make the whole experience next level uncomfortable, the psychologist administering the evaluation was staring at Edwin. And whatever it was that he was noticing, he was picking up a vibe from Edwin that it was awkward. He asked him if he was uncomfortable and he was honest. He goes, yeah, it's uncomfortable. The doctor who was conducting the evaluation worked at Cambridge University where he was the leading psychologist in autism studies and research. In fact, according to Kirk Johnson's book, he was Britain's principal expert on Asperger's syndrome and autism. And his name is Dr. Simon Baron Cohen. And when I first read that, I was like, oh, kind of like the actor. Well, it is kind of like the actor because they're cousins. Sasha Baron Cohen is this doctor's first cousin. Dr. Baron Cohen has evaluated a number of criminal defendants and written up comprehensive reports regarding any psychological concerns. In fact, it was Baron Cohen's diagnosis of Scottish computer hacker Gary McKinnon in 2001 who successfully hacked into America's defense headquarters, the Pentagon, when the term Asperger's defense began gaining traction. So how did all of this come about anyway? What led Edwin's attorneys to seek out an expert opinion about their client? Well, when they were speaking to Edwin about him breaking into the museum, they came to find that he didn't seem to think that taking the birds was that big of a deal. I talked about this previously, how Edwin, despite his own appreciation for the art of classic Victorian salmon fly tying and the history of it and the importance of the authenticity of the feathers, he apparently failed to grasp the importance and significance of the birds at the museum and what they represented in terms of history and science. Edwin also didn't think there was any chance he was going to get caught, which may seem kind of naive to most of us today, knowing what we know about how traceable everything is and everybody is these days, especially when we leave our digital footprints everywhere we go. But maybe back in 2009, the average 20 or 21-year-old didn't really get it. Edwin was a bright young man. He was a prodigious flautist. He had mastered fly tying, a skill that is not easy by any stretch of the imagination. He was a young man who, when he put his mind to it, could excel at just about anything. And to me, he did think and plan the crime that he pulled off pretty thoroughly, considering he had never carried out a burglary before. But Edwin just didn't consider how rare these items that he was selling online actually were, how incredibly suspicious it would look, and how permanent and traceable everything that he did online would be. If he did consider it, 
His desires for those birds and the feathers and the money made it easy for him to overlook it. He also underestimated the museum curators and law enforcement. He pegged them as a bunch of bumbling fools who took more than a month to even notice that the birds were missing. And that only emboldened Edwin even more, adding to his confidence that he would not be caught. I personally didn't think that law enforcement and the curators were foolish, as Edwin seemed to have thought. I just didn't think that the break-in was a priority over more serious crimes for law enforcement. And as for the curators at the museum, they have tens of thousands of birds in those drawers. They don't go around checking every single drawer just to make sure everything is in its place. It took time for them to realize that something was amiss. I do think that they missed an important opportunity to close this case out earlier by never taking a look online and seeing if anybody was trying to sell these birds. So because Edwin didn't think that taking the birds was that big of a deal and that he wasn't going to be caught, his attorney started thinking that these were signs that Edwin might be on the autism spectrum. Now, Dreamers, I started looking around as to where this thought may have come from. And honestly, it feels like a bottomless rabbit hole to go down. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an expert. I've not raised a child diagnosed with autism. And my personal experiences are limited to working with preschool age children who had been diagnosed. They were under the age of five, which presents obviously much differently than older children, teenagers, and adults. So if you have any insight on it, feel free to share it with me on social media. But here on the show, I'm going to go ahead and steer clear of this discussion because I just don't know enough about it. Some of the earmarks of autism that Kirk Johnson pointed to that may or may not apply to Edwin include the struggle to make friends, the difficulty reading social cues, challenges in social situations, inability to conform to social norms, and that these things may lead a person to become vulnerable, to possibly get themselves in legal trouble because of being naive or having an inability to make sound decisions. Anyway, because of his observations, Edwin's attorney got the idea that he might be autistic and wanted him to be evaluated. Once Edwin had finished answering the questionnaire, Dr. Baron Cohen sat down and talked with him to get to know more about him. Edwin told him about learning how to tie salmon flies. He told him what his upbringing was like back in New York. He discussed plans that he had for the future once he was finished at the Royal Academy. And they also got into some of the vicious things that people were posting online about Edwin and his crimes. When it was finished, Dr. Baron Cohen gave his opinion about Edwin in a report, and he had nothing but glowing things to say about Edwin. So I'll go ahead and share some of the excerpts from the doctor's report that Kirk Johnson included in his book. In part, the report read, Edwin had taken fly tying to the highest level of an art form and is deeply immersed in the subject both as an artist and from a historical perspective. He explained to me how each feather is different 
and how his deep interest in understanding the nature of each feather. He had not been motivated by money. Okay, so Edwin had told the doctor about the days back in the 19th century during the Victorian age when longshoremen were still bringing into London shipments of tens of thousands of rare and exotic birdskins from the far corners of the earth. Of that, the doctor wrote, he stressed that he had taken the birds with the hopes of bringing about a second golden age of fly tying and that it was his dream to one day write a book about fly tying using pictures of the birds taken from the museum. Edwin was not driven by greed, but an obsessional interest in fly tying that caused him to be so over-focused on this art form and all of its intricate details that he developed a classic form of tunnel vision in only being able to think about the materials and the products he wished to make and not about the social consequences for himself or for others. When viewed in this light, breaking into the museum had seemed entirely logical. He had felt the only bad thing that he had done was break the window. It had not dawned on him that he had done anything bad in taking the stuffed birds, and he certainly never wished to upset specialists in the fly-tying community in which he was one of the most highly respected artists internationally. Edwin now understands that he upset them by breaking their trust, but at the time, this had not even been on his radar. So dreamers, therein lies what is at the heart of Dr. Baron Cohen's final opinion. Because Edwin was unable to see how his actions might affect the community in which he had been so well-known and well-liked and well-respected that he was unable to see that they might become very upset with him and publicly condemn him for it and for causing harm to the fly-tying community as a whole. Edwin's actions are congruent with someone who has Asperger's syndrome. Now, whether or not Edwin has Asperger's, Britain's leading expert believes that he does. But I don't think Edwin was completely honest with the doctor, not on the questionnaire and not when they spoke. We know Edwin tried answering the questions in a way that he thought they would want him to answer them or in a way that would be most advantageous to him and his case. He also led the doctor to believe that he wasn't motivated by money, which is exactly why he was motivated. And he also wasn't blinded by the desire to bring about a fly-tying renaissance. He wanted to be the best fly-tire in the world and have the best and most authentic materials. And he wanted to make obscene amounts of money while doing it. He also wanted a golden flute, which is a little pretentious, but he did want to help his family, so there's that. And then when it came to throwing everyone that he sold birdskins to under the bus, he himself said that he didn't care about getting anybody else in trouble. It was their problem that they trusted him. So he's not really completely this glowing, altruistic, fly tire, blinded by ambition and the desire to resurrect the authentic history of the art form. He wanted to tie the best flies. He wanted to have the best feathers. He wanted to have the best flute and he wanted to line his pockets. You're all free to form your opinions about the doctor's assessment of Edwin, but I don't think he gave the doctor a true portrait of himself. 
if the prosecution had Edwin evaluated, we would have probably seen a much different report. But that's what Edwin and his attorney got. And that's what they were going to be able to present to the Crown Court. When it came time for Edwin's next court date, the attorney submitted the doctor's opinion to the court and highlighted the fact that traits exhibited by individuals diagnosed with Asperger syndrome do apply to his client. This is reflected in Edwin's scores on the questionnaire and examination, that he has a history of being hyper-focused on minuscule details, which, on the flip side of it all, is the same reason why he excelled at the flute and at fly tying. But at the same time, it does go hand in hand with difficulties when it comes to a person's ability to socialize. The conclusion of the doctor's report is also in the book, and it states, I am persuaded that the shock of being arrested, the shock of how his reputation as a very serious artist and a world leader in the fly tying community has been badly affected, and the feedback from that community and from the police and the negative media coverage of this crime have all led him to learning a sobering lesson, such that the risk of him committing a similar crime in the future is negligible. Therapeutically, I have encouraged Edwin to not drop out of the fly tying world or to drop his long-standing desire to write an important and scholarly book, but instead to complete his writing project and also include an autobiographical chapter in it and explain how his undiagnosed Asperger's led him to commit a crime which he now regrets. I recommend that rather than imprisonment, Edwin be given resources and counseling. If you recall, at Edwin's previous court date, the judge had warned him and his attorney that a mental health evaluation did not mean that he was going to take it into consideration when it came time to sentencing Edwin. But now the judge had this Asperger's diagnosis from such a prominent Cambridge doctor, Edwin's attorney was pretty confident that they had the judge right where they wanted him. Edwin's next court date was scheduled for Friday, April 8, 2011. That was also the last day of the last semester of Edwin's time at the Royal Academy of Music. So whatever it was the Crown Court judge was going to do, either Edwin would be graduating with his degree and off to play the flute in some symphony, either there in Europe or back here in the United States, or he'd be going to prison. Should he be given the maximum sentence under British law, he would be spending the better part of the next decade as an inmate. I probably don't have to tell you that the prosecutor on the case wasn't moved by the Asperger's diagnosis given by their country's foremost authority on the neurodevelopmental disorder, Dr. Baron Cohen. To the prosecutor, it didn't matter. Edwin was way smart enough to know better. He was cognizant of the potential repercussions of his actions and deserved the sentence that their laws call for. He didn't think that the judge should be taking the doctor's opinion into consideration because it was irrelevant. 
and dreamers, I was actually kind of surprised that the prosecutor was interested in seeing Edwin locked up in prison for as many as 10 years for this crime because I've been under the impression, I've not formed the opinion yet, but I've been under the impression that Great Britain is generally thought of as being too lenient on crime and sentencing. The opinions about this are all over the place. Some people think that the judges are overly lenient because the idea is for a criminal to be rehabilitated versus harshly punished. And there are sometimes cases where details on sentencing and mitigating factors aren't even reported in the media. Some believe it's a financial issue, that putting people in prison for long periods of time costs more money than Great Britain is wanting to spend. And some think that there is systemic bias in that some violent crimes committed against women are given more lenient sentences when the crime deserved a much more harsh punishment. Perhaps none of this is applicable to Edwin's case at all because he's American. There might be this feeling that Edwin is kind of pretentious and spoiled. He was welcomed into the country, into the Royal Academy of Music, yet he turned around and wreaked havoc on the integrity of their natural history and did irreparable damage to it all. But then a criminal who does irreparable damage when he or she is convicted of, say, manslaughter, the average sentence in Great Britain for that is about two to ten years. I guess what it all boils down to is perhaps Edwin's state of mind. While the defense attorney insists that this was all out of a love for the art of fly tying, the prosecutor was like, yeah, no, he was driven by greed and the desire to make tens of thousands of dollars by illegally selling stolen birds. His defense attorney framed this crime as an act steeped in impulsivity, while the prosecutor again was like, yeah, no, this was well planned. He assembled a burglary kit and he made this to-do list. Nothing impulsive about that whatsoever, especially when you go down the list of Edwin's actions leading up to the crime. The prosecutor reminded everybody that Edwin had visited the museum a full seven months prior to the break-in on November 5th, 2008. He had lied to the curators as to the nature and reason for his visit, pretending to be an assistant researcher by taking professional high-resolution pictures of the birds. And not only did he take pictures of the birds, but also of the museum itself, the hallways inside the bird vault, the location of the birds that he wanted, the drawers which were labeled with the Latin names of the birds, the exterior of the museum, the perimeter of the building, the barbed wire walls, a hidden footpath that led to the backside of the museum. And he did all of this in order to be able to plan his way there to the museum, the manner in which he was going to break in, and the way that he was going to get back out. He took note of the trains that he would take to get there, the path that he would walk, the wall that he would climb, the barbed wire that he would snip, and the window that he would cut through. He had a document on his hard drive called Plan for Museum Invasion. And then when Edwin was questioned by Detective Hopkin following his arrest, he admitted to using the money that he earned by buying a fancy flute. He was deep in student debt, 
and he helped his mom and dad as they had encountered some financial hardships. And dreamers, let's not forget that Edwin took a really nice vacation to Japan in order to fly tie under cherry blossoms, which to me sounds more like a want than a need. The prosecutor also referenced a conversation Edwin had with a friend online about scheming and making money by stealing birds from the Natural History Museum. And there you have it, the prosecutor said, all the evidence that you need to assign an appropriate sentence is right there. The prosecutor also expressed his concern that because this case is so peculiar, we've got this American musical prodigy flautist robbing a museum of old dead birds to sell to a community of people infatuated with the obscure Victorian era craft of fly tying might cause everyone to view this crime in a less serious light than it really should be. He referenced a statement from the science director at the train museum where he described the loss of the birds as being not only catastrophic to British history, but also to the heritage of our planet Earth. This was a theft, not just from the museum, but a theft from humanity. That Edwin degraded the skins, and in doing so, he degraded history. He removed the most important link to their past by discarding their biodata tags. You just can't go back to the jungle and replace these birds. Their importance to humanity was because they were 150 to 200 years old. You can't travel back in time. You can't undo the damage that Edwin has done. As Edwin sat and listened to his character be assassinated in the crown court, he felt as though he was being unfairly portrayed as some kind of evil beast out to destroy all of humanity. With every word the prosecutor said about his actions, Edwin felt himself becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. He just didn't think that he was as awful as he was being made out to be. Then the prosecutor had one last thing that he wanted to remind the court to factor into the sentencing, that Edwin had also admitted to stealing a flat screen TV from the rec room at the Royal Academy of Music. From there, it was Edwin's attorney's turn to try and do what he could to get the court to see that Edwin isn't as vile and despicable as the prosecutor has made him out to be. While he had the report from Dr. Baron Cohen regarding Edwin's diagnosis of Asperger's, he submitted some statements from people who knew and were friends with Edwin and were willing to speak to Edwin's character, including his science tutor that his parents hired when he first expressed his interest in animals and natural history, the man who taught Edwin and his brother how to fly tie, Ed Muzzy Musroll, the first person that Edwin purchased authentic salmon fly feathers from, John McLean, his French-Canadian fly-tying friend, Luke Couturier, they were all willing to vouch for Edwin as being of sound character and considered him to be a good person and a good friend. The judge was not impressed. In fact, the only thing the judge really seemed interested in addressing was the case law that Edwin's attorney had submitted for the judge to take into consideration when deciding on what would be a fair sentence for Edwin. And that precedent-setting case is known as the Crown versus Gibson. So I looked around for this case, Gibson, 
There is very, very little about it online. But fortunately for us, Kirk Johnson had dug up a decent amount of information regarding the case and he included it in his book. So I'm going to share that information with you, this Crown versus Gibson case. But we're going to have to save that for our next installment of The Great Feather Heist. This Gibson versus Crown case is really bizarre. I've never heard anything like it ever. So you're not going to want to miss out on it when we come back for what may be the final part of the series. I'm not quite sure yet. Don't forget to look up California Dreaming on Facebook, like the page, leave a review, and join our discussion group. You can follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. If you have a dollar or two to spare, you can help support the production of the show through our Patreon, and you can start binging because there is a lot of content on there. Just go to patreon.com and search for California Dreaming. Feel free to reach out, message me with case suggestions. I am really terrible at replying, but I let it stay in my inbox and I will get to it, I promise. The email is californiapod at gmail.com. I want to thank you all so much. And if you keep listening past the outro, I will share some more of the comments on the classic fly tying forum that I didn't share with you last time because of spoilers. It's not very many, just a couple more minutes. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. Okay, thanks for hanging back to listen to a few more of the comments from the members of the Fly Tying Forum community. In the last part following the outro, I shared a few of the most recent comments from around 2020 or so. But this section goes back to when the news about Edwin's arrest hit the fly tying forums. And it will kind of give you a little bit more of a glimpse as to how the members of this tight knit community reacted to the revelation that it was one of their own who pulled off the heist and what it was like from their perspective, the perspective of people who truly have a passion for this art form. We know that the police showed up at Edwin's flat on November 12, 2010. A member of the Fly Tying Forum posted some information from an MSNBC article that came out about 10 or 11 days later or so on November 22nd. This member wrote, This guy is a contributing member of this board. And the MSNBC article read, an American has been charged with stealing hundreds of rare bird skins from a British museum. Detectives investigating the theft of nearly 300 brightly colored stuffed birds from the Natural History Museum arrested Edwin Rist on Friday. Police said that the 22-year-old is facing burglary and money laundering offenses. The birds disappeared after reports of a break-in at the museum, which is located northwest of London, in June of last year. Richard Lane, director of science at the museum, said the specimens included male trogons, trogons, which are in the same class of birds as the resplendent quetzals, from South America and Central America, as well as birds of paradise from New Guinea. The American is due to appear in court 
November 26, the BBC reported. This week's Gazette Mail takes a look at a little heralded crime that has sent shockwaves through the worldwide community of people who tie full-dress Atlantic salmon flies. We sportsmen like to think that the pastimes we adore are as pure as the wind-driven snow. But then something like this comes along. The news hit me like a cold salmon in the face. You see, I too tie full-dress salmon flies, fancy Victorian-era patterns tied with brightly colored feathers, tinsels, and flosses. Another member commented, All I can say is, wow, the lengths some guys will go to to get the perfect feathers just proves how truly obsessive and addicting tying can be. So, dreamers, I mentioned at some point that I was going to stop referring to the members of the fly tying community as obsessed with it because one of them noted that the author of the book, Kirk Johnson, portrayed them as such. And they took exception to that. But this is one of their members describing some of them as being obsessive and addicted. So I guess maybe there's a double standard of sorts. If you belong to the community, then you can say certain things. But if you don't, then you have no right to pass judgment or opinions about it. So I pulled back from making them out to be so fanatical about fly tying. There were some follow-up comments. I love to tie, but I'll never get into the salmon flies rip off a museum what a clown this really rocked our community sad face emoji unbelievable i've been to that museum many times it's a wonderful place i hope the judge gives him just rewards as fly dressers we don't need this kind of press and uh honestly dreamers i'm not so sure fly tying was a particularly prolific topic in the mainstream media prior to Edwin's burglary and subsequent arrest. I never really recall seeing much about it. Not that I would have noticed or looked or sought it out anyway, but now I'm going to notice it all the time, I'm sure. I mean, if it ever comes up in mainstream media again. Another member left this comment on November 25th, 2010. Ha ha, ha ha ha, lol, this is so amazing. I can just picture a frantic man scrambling with handfuls of skins trying to get away. I can sympathize with him. I see birds and pelts that belong to others and begin to drool over the flies. I can imagine tying with them, but I always tell myself, don't get any fancy ideas. In my opinion, I think the guy had a great amount of inspiration and it drove him to that museum on that night. I can just see him in his basement with his little lamp and a little vice and 300 birds all around him. At some point, one of the members asked what the username of the person who did the burglary was and someone gave them a username, but it was the wrong one. So they started looking around to see if they could find him online. but. It quickly ended when someone pointed out that it was the wrong person. So they were about to get ready to falsely drag somebody for something that they didn't do because of mistaken identity. That's how vicious this was becoming. Another member wrote this comment. How would a 22-year-old explain his source for such rare feathers if he managed to use them and then showcase his ties? I had a hell of a time getting feathers sent from India from a farm that raised commercial breeds for everyday ties. What the hell was this kid thinking? 
to be young and bold again, I suppose. And after that, Dreamers, members of this community thread were calling for the moderators to kill it, mainly because they were all turning on Edwin. They were calling him names, nothing really vulgar, just clown, fruitcake. They wanted to see him harshly punished. And that's about it from the time that Edwin was arrested because they weren't really allowing too much to stay or they, people were backing off. There were more threads about the book. And then it jumps back to a time when Edwin and Anton posted pretty frequently and were interacting with the members of the community. It was then, back when Edwin was still a young teenager and people were talking about him being one of the best fly tires they'd ever seen and how impressive it was due to his young age. So thanks again for listening. Um, That's all the comments that I have to share. And I will see you in part six.